Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the show, uh, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. here at Blog Talk Radio. Cyber Station USA shall be back uh, any day now. They're in the middle of a renaissance over there, I would imagine, a, gen- a-, a huge uh, renovation of their studios. Uh, this is Chuck Morse along with Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan emanating from Los Angeles. Patrick, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I have um, uh, recovered from the Oscar party. Oh boy! <laughs> did you did you find that program to be interesting? Um, well, since I was at an Oscar party, uh, party was fun, and there was lots of things going on and lots of champagne being passed around. Uh, yeah, sure. And it, and we had an Oscar quiz, and yeah, you know, there was lots of it was fun. You know, I just uh, I, it's not specifically the Oscars, but I generally find those sorts of programs to be insufferably dull. I just don't like to see people go up and, you know, flagellate and wave their arms. I don't know. I just never – I can't get into it. It's nothing particular. Probably the Oscars is the least offensive of all of them. I mean, I actually like the one that – I think that the Tonys is okay because they actually have some performances, mm-hmm. which aren't bad, and the Grammys does some performances, which aren't bad. But for the most part, it's a lot of this sort of – Self-flagellation. I just find it to be dull, and I don't know. I I, I can't get myself. I, I usually have a lot of trouble staying with those shows. Well, one of the shows which I actually watch Saturday is the Independent Spirit Award, which is as un-Oscar-like as uh, you could get. Nobody wears tuxes or gowns. Uh, they show a lot of clips from the film. They have rock and roll bands and. People, uh, it's on cable, so uh, the language uh, can be four-letter, and often is. It's the same stars, only they're really letting their hair down, and that's a lot more fun. It's also on the beach in Santa Monica. Right. Oh well, that sounds. I mean, it sounds like it's fun to be there. Yes. Patrick, we have a guest coming up, Sally Denton, the author of *The Plots Against the President*. Yes. You've read the book. I read it over the weekend. It's very interesting. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I think that she has a wrong take on it, but the book is accurate, and it definitely categorizes the history of what were several attempts, one on the life of and the other a coup attempt against the administration of Franklin D. Roosevelt. And, And interestingly enough, I knew nothing about this until I got the book. Yeah. I mean, I knew it's been around. I knew about it mainly, as I mentioned earlier, from uh, presidential historian Michael Beschloss, who I've read over the years. He's kind of an official historian. He doesn't he doesn't go too deeply into these sorts of things. But he did. He does sometimes leave out, you know, drop a little tantalizing piece of history in his research. And, And I read this as a footnote in one of his books. And it always was one of these things that I kind of said to myself, you know, that's something that that should be looked into. I wish I had written this book. (laughs) I mean, it's a great story, and it's an important story because it has a lot to do, a lot of resonance today. It's not something – it's something that I think, you know, gives us a glimpse into sort of the the behind-the-scenes establishment, if you will, and and some of their machinations and their occasional – Schemes and plans. Yeah, and it's very, very interesting. Yeah, I, reason. I thought it was uh, fascinating. I actually have been to one of Michael Beschloss's uh, seminars. I, I think it was at um, oh either the Woodrow Wilson or, or one of the think tanks in Washington when I was in college. And uh, um, 
he's going to become the preeminent presidential historian. Right. And uh, but but uh, the author here, uh, Ms. Denton, uh, did a very very good job. I uh, yeah. I had no idea this went on. Although I think that she gets it wrong when she looks at this as a right wing thing, and as something that people did it because they didn't like Franklin Roosevelt's legislation, which they viewed as anti business. That's that misses the point. That in a sense it. Not only does that trivialize the actual event itself and its importance, but it, it actually diminishes Roosevelt in a lot of ways. Well, you'll have an opportunity to talk with her um, when she's on uh, later this week. Right. No, but I, I, I want to talk about this all week. <laughs> I mean, to me, this is really interesting. Well, there, there are other things going on, like, okay. like a, um, a primary election in Michigan tomorrow night. Not much we can say about that. I mean, I hope Mitt Romney wins, and what can you do? Um, well, a, a couple of interesting uh, things have gone on there. One is that Santorum is now, back to your original topic, uh, asking for Secret Service protection. And, well, that's reasonable. He is a major candidate now. Yeah, it is. I don't think it has anything to do with anybody threatening his life. I've, I've heard right. of nothing. He might have some threats coming. Yeah. Um, and He's, whether he does or not, you know, he is uh, somebody who's a, who has won several of these caucuses. I don't think he's won any primaries. You're right, and, but you're right. He, he does deserve it, etc. But uh, he made the point of asking for it, and then um, he's, um, to my mind, has started a class war inside of the Republican Party in that he is uh, taking a very um, blue-collar approach, right. uh, claiming he's sticking up for the, the working man and uh, working man and woman, and uh, at the same time um, criticizing uh, Mitt Romney for sticking up for the Wall Street elites. Well, that's, that's, that sounds like a lot of campaign rhetoric. I don't think that you could really say Romney is, is a Wall Street kind of a guy. But um, I'm sure that's going to be the argument made by Obama, who I think is a Wall Street guy <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> well, those of us on the progressive side have, agree with you occasionally on that one. But I just kind of think it's interesting that the uh, the class warfare that the Republicans are trying to accuse the Democrats of, they're, they've got going on inside their own party. Well, it's, a, it's an argument going on in the whole country right now. Yeah, that's true. It has a lot to do with the people that tried to knock off Roosevelt. Um, well, that's <laughs> go back to a topic, but that's why that book is relevant today. I mean, it, it's an insight into the sort of the what, what I euphemistically like to call the liberal Eastern Seaboard establishment and how they 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 have their various ways of doing things. I, and I noticed that uh, in the Eastern Le uh, liberal Seaboard establishment, you included Bain Capital. Yeah. Well, you know, Bain Capital is not a conservative company. I mean, not not politically. I mean, I know that Mitt Romney was the head of it, but no, they're they're uh, one of the Massachusetts sort of uh, hail fellow, well met type companies here. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're not particularly conservative. Uh, uh, unlike their, their former uh, their, 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 their former head or former partner, uh, we have to oh, welcome Romney, in our. Um, Mitt Romney uh, wasn't conservative back then. We have to welcome in our affiliates. Great, let's do that. Uh, shall we wait for a little fanfare or just go for it? I think we should just go for it. Great. Uh, Fairness, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Welcome aboard WWPRAM 
in Tampa Bay, Florida, KRKQ-FM in Ashland, Oregon. Of course, we're on, uh, we have our partner, Cyber Station USA Radio Network, is um, on an interregnum this afternoon. They shall be back hopefully tomorrow. You're listening to Blog Talk Radio. You can join us at 424-675-6806. That number again is 424-675-6806. Chuck Morris, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, what is the email address? The email address is uh, fairnessradio at gmail.com. And don't forget, uh, Blog Talk listeners, when you do call in, we are heard on terrestrial radio, which means we have to abide by the FCC regulations and not say the seven naughty words or or anything really racial or et cetera like that. So so make sure that whenever you call in your comments or something, you'd love to have your mother here. Absolutely. And no F, in other words, don't use the F word and don't use the S word. Or the N word. Right. Well, of course. <laughs> or anything dealing with any someone's racial origins. I mean, that's off limits. Right. Just don't do it. Um, anyways. There's a, uh, an interesting Supreme Court case that's going to be heard today, and we might want to bring our Supreme Court uh, expert, our uh, constitutional expert, Albert Navarro, on to talk about it. I don't know if you're, you're aware of the Alien Tort Statute. No, I'm not. What's it about? What's it about? The Alien Tort Statute, which is 223 years old, it was uh, passed some time ago, to say the least, right. um, allows foreign citizens to file suit against American companies for crimes committed in foreign lands, right, and it's, and specific crimes, crimes against humanity, and there haven't been very many of these, but there's a very hot one going on now um, involving Unicol, the oil company, which apparently, according to the lawsuit and also things that I heard when I was in Burma, um, hired the Burmese army to clear the way for a pipeline from Burma to Thailand. And the Burmese army burned villages, enslaved people in those villages to work on the pipeline, raped women, etc. And uh, the Karen tribe uh, has now filed lawsuits, a lawsuit against Unicol, and it's reaching the Supreme Court. It lost in the, uh, federal, the lower federal courts, but uh, the Supreme Court has agreed to take it up. It's going to be very interesting to see what they say. I don't know. What do you think of uh, the idea of foreign citizens uh, suing American companies and American courts for crimes committed in foreign countries? I, I think that it sounds to me like it's entirely constitutional. I mean, it's uh, it's been it was passed 220 years ago. Yeah. You know, I'm surprised that it hasn't been done before. It, it actually has been uh, uh, done before too, but usually the lawsuits uh, ended in settlements. Right. Right. Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm for it. You know, I hope they, uh, they, they're able to file a successful case against them. Interesting. Okay. I, 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 I guessed wrong on that one because uh, I've heard that some, uh, including Fox News, say that uh, uh, foreigners should not have the ability to sue American companies for crimes committed abroad. Well, I mean, I, I guess it would have to, you know, it would have to really be, we'd have to take a look at specifically what sorts of crimes we could end up with millions of lawsuits. <laughs> you know, it's a, it would have to be a pretty serious issue, one that deals with, you know, real, you know, inhumanity kind of stuff. And it sounds like this one does. Well, there's actually three suits uh, working their way through. Oh, this is the first one to hit. There's a, uh, a case pending to hold Chiquita Brands International accountable for its relationship with paramilitary groups in Colombia, which 
according to a lawsuit, committed atrocities. And then there's a suit against Exxon and Chevron for abuses in Indonesia and Nigeria. And then there's also a suit against the American office of Rio Tinto for uh, aiding the Papua New Guinea government in a civil war in order to protect its mind. So they're all bubbling up here. And, and, and then there's a couple uh, uh, against uh, old, old lawsuits against co- companies, and these were settled. Uh, rating, uh, rather aiding the apartheid system in South Africa, but those were settled. So, mm-hmm. um, well, the, and the basis of the lawsuit and why a number of, cri- of conservatives um, criticized it is that um, ne- that corporations should not be able to avoid the same kind of litigation that people can avoid. And of course, that brings up uh, if well, if corporations have the rights of people, then they also have to take the lawsuits that people have too. Well, that, that argument sounds to me to be kind of convoluted. I mean, this uh, this gets into some of the research we did over the weekend on the plot, you know, the so-called Wall Street plot, where Gen- Lieutenant General Smedley Butler, who was a great patriot, made the case that a lot of wars that he personally was involved in as a military man in South America and Central America were on behalf of major corporations who wanted to rape these countries. Mm-hmm. And that he became very anti-war and spoke out about that. And uh, I guess that it also comes down to whether, you know, the culpability of those governments. They deserve certainly some of it. I mean, Burma has a, an army. If that army was was hired, then the government itself and the army are ultimately responsible for those actions. They were bribed. And uh, you know, it, it, it gets—it's not as quite as cut and dried as you you might you might suggest. But it seems like if they can show that the company actually bribed them, then that would be—I think—you know—they'd be liable. I would think. We shall see. Um, uh, as of now, they have not been held liable. But at, everybody was kind of surprised that the Supreme Court agreed to take the case. Right. They could have left it with the Federal Appeals Court. Um, so. Well, maybe they want to overturn the the Alien Tort Act, or maybe they are going to to uh, open up a new a new branch of law, some, as some people say, holding uh, companies responsible for the behavior of governments that they employ. Right. I would be in favor of holding the gov uh, the, the corporations responsible. Good. Well, internationally, I mean, it's a that's a good system of checks and balances. You know, we have if they, although uh, although I suppose that one the, uh, a negative. The consequence of that might be that the corporation might pack its bags and leave the United States. Well, probably not because they are liable in other countries, too. I mean, we aren't the only one that has this kind of a law. But they could buy a country. They'll all move to the Bahamas. Yeah, they could. They could set up an island in the in the Indian Ocean or something. I'm just saying it's yeah. uh, there might be consequences to it. Um, it's an interesting subject. We should do a show on it. Uh, we have to take a break now and bring in our first guest. Right. Hi, Patrick. You're, you're on the line with us. Uh, hold on. Um, and Chuck are, will be, are we live? I can't remember, Patrick. Uh, uh, yes, we are live. Chuck. Great. Yep, we're here. 
Want to introduce our guest? Great. We're uh, we're back. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Our guest is David Wolman. He is the author of The End of Money. Um, David, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. David, you are writing about a, an idea that's been floating around which would essentially move our society, our nation, into a cashless society. Uh, you believe that cash is something that's obsolete. Is that right? Uh, it's getting there. It sure is getting there. Uh, so, yes, you know, I'm arguing for the end of cash, but I'm I'm doing it, uh, you know, with a touch of lightheartedness. I'm not doing it with um, any naivete about how quickly we can make it happen. And, you know, the wider goal is to subject cash to some scrutiny because it has skated by for, for ages without without too much criticism. And, you know, to such a large extent, our financial lives have, have moved away from cash already, right? I imagine that you're not making your rent or mortgage payments with a with a briefcase full of cash kind of thing. And yet as soon as you bring up this idea with people, like, well, maybe it's time has come, you know, and we, can, we should move on, right away it really brings out all kinds of, uh, you know, fears and anxieties people have about, about money, about privacy, and, and really about, you know, how do you, how do you build financial stability? What, where does money get its value? What, what is value? You know, all of that. Uh, you would never think at first, but it, you know, once you start thinking about where these little slips of paper and little metal rounds come from, you know, you you end up inevitably wandering down this path towards sort of what you know, what is money, and why do we treat different kinds of money differently? And you know, so this was what I was uh, setting out to explore with this project. Well, look, I mean, it's a fascinating to- topic. Uh, I've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about it, both personally and philosophically. And um, and I think you're quite wrong. I think that cash plays a major role in society, and has become and has in recent years, since the downturn in the economy, has actually played a bigger role because there is a whole movement amongst people, even including myself here a little bit, to go to an all cash life, to get away from credit cards, to get away right. from debit cards, to to do everything in cash, so that uh, by doing so you don't incur debt. You basically are debt neutral, and you're paying um, the uh, value of products and services at its par value in terms of at the value of what the dollar is at any given time. The other, of course, important element of cash is that cash means anonymity. It means that you can conduct transactions, and it doesn't go on a record somewhere, whereas if you're doing it by computer – which is by using a credit card or a debit card or some other instrument, that information goes on a computer somewhere and can be accessed, and your business is known by someone else. So I think that cash is part of, uh, or money or coin, uh, you know, is part of our ability to uh, to maintain some basic freedoms, even if we don't use it as much, and we don't. I mean, certainly we all use debit cards more and credit cards more for more things and even checks, but it's important to preserve cash, and it's important, and I would actually suggest that people go more toward cash. Interesting. Well, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's a statement that, you know, people seem to trust governments more than they trust banks, uh, and, I, you know, I'm right there with you, and I think a lot of the privacy and anonymity concerns, you know, these things, they can't be poo-pooed at all. Um, you know, but what's interesting is a lot of people see that there is – 
you know, there is a real value proposition for not holding a lot of cash around. I get the sense, you know, you're not someone who's saying cash is is useful and we really need to keep it around because I don't want to pay my taxes, which I hear a lot about, you know, the same thing, I want to buy my drugs, I want to uh, tip hookers, you know, all of that. That's sort of uh, tertiary to this conversation, right? That's You're, you're talking about more substantive right. benefits for cash, like, you know, tipping and, and these bigger questions of are your transactions being monitored? And, you know, nobody... Nobody likes those ideas, let alone how credit and debit cards, you know, we seem to spend money of that form, the credit form of money, uh, you know, dangerously. We're at like $800 billion in debt right now on credit cards, Americans are. And, you know, all of this I, I address quite carefully in the book. But, you know, once you scrutinize the costs of cash a little more, I think the conversation becomes more, more nuanced than you're acknowledging. For example, you know, we spend... We spend electronic money a little more easily than we spend paper money, right? Well, then you turn that to people in the service sector, and they, you know, you ask a bellman or a waiter or a taxi driver, you know, would you ever want to get rid of cash? No, 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 I need tips. Well, in fact, people tip more when they are paying with with plastic than they do with cash. You know, so that one is cost for pause. I think on the bigger, you know, privacy and anonymity questions, which you know, there's a whole section of the of the book committed to this. Privacy, we want. Right and privacy we deserve and privacy we should demand and it's you know it's not sufficient today and hopefully tomorrow between you know public action and and regulators stepping up it can be better but what I would argue and argue in the book is that we don't want anonymity and we actually don't deserve anonymity and that is you know that is part of your responsibility of living in a civil society right there's nothing in the constitution that says you have a right to be anonymous once you have a driver's license once you register to vote they say you know that means you want to pay taxes in this society and that is not you know anything near saying oh that visa and mastercard should have you know, a big bay window into your life and your financial life. But you are part of the system, and, you know, there are ongoing tensions about where civil liberty ends and where law enforcement's right to, to scrutinize our activities, you know, stop, starts or stops, whether it's a, a surveillance camera at an airport. Or, you know, you might say, I think everybody should go to cash tomorrow. I'm really pushing everyone I know to do that. But you don't seem too mad when... You know, the FBI learns that an aspiring terrorist is laundering funds, you know, from the from nowhere Afghanistan to somebody in in Los Angeles, right? So there's much more give and take about sort of the costs and benefits of cash that I don't think you can, you know, simplistically say cash is better. We should promote everyone to use it. And and in fact, there's you know, there's a huge thrust in the book about how cash is most punitive for the people who have so little of it, right? And for me, this was revelatory. You know, I have this guy from the Gates Foundation. They're putting, they put $500 million into these programs overseas to try and get people transacting through their phones instead of using cash. And the reason is because, you know, in this guy's words, cash is the enemy of the poor. You're trapped using cash. You can't earn credit. You're, all of your wealth, however much or however little, could be lost overnight in a tsunami, in a fire, in a flood, let alone a theft. And then you can't save if you only have cash. You can't build financial stability because everyone's making claims on what little money you have stuffed under the mattress, right? You're drunk uncle or your neighbor who says, you know, I really need just a little bit of money to buy a new pair of shoes. That's a very fair request. 
The problem is you're trying to save to buy seeds for the next planting season. You're trying to save to send a daughter to school. The stuff that really actually helps people climb out of poverty. Without saving, you can't do that. And cash is a real obstacle to saving. So suddenly, even though you are encouraging your friends to go to the cash economy, you know, all these development experts out there who want to end poverty, they're trying to get people into the formal economy, which means away from cash and using electronic money. Not because they want to monitor their transactions and advertise, you know, Banana Republic crap to them, but because they know that this helps give them a leg up to build financial stability. Mm-hmm. All right, our guest is David Wolman, The End of Money. David, I would prefer a civil libertarian approach, and I'm not suggesting an all-cash society. I mean, let's, let's be clear. I mean, I use debit cards and I use credit cards. I'm simply suggesting that cash has to be an element of our financial life. We have to have the ability to do things in cash when we choose to, and that cash has an, an as, there is an aspect to finance where cash is very relevant. Um, I'm not comfortable with the uh, – I, I, you know, I agree that you, that you need to charge things or use debit cards to build up credit and all of that, and I think that's very important. But um, you have to make – I disagree with your comment that why should we have a right to anonymity. There's nothing in the Constitution that gives us that right. There's nothing in the Constitution that talks about privacy or privacy rights, as we've talked about. But there's also nothing in the Constitution that says we have to do everything on, on as a matter of record. You know, I mean – Absolutely, we, absolutely. And, I, you know, I think a lot of that – plays a role in – maintaining the ability to or the option to to conduct your affairs privately and that doesn't mean hiring hookers i mean you i like the way you portray that i mean you know, that's not it, what we're it, talking about it's that's trivial to right. the conversation you and i are talking about right the point is it doesn't matter what the activity is right. one has to maintain the right to do that and to main, and to keep cash as as an option it plays a role it is an important role and I also think that it plays a role in a sense in our system, and this is maybe a little bit more complex, but it plays a role in our system of checks and balances because we have a system where our, 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 our monetary our currency is issued by the Federal Reserve, by a private bank, which is a consortium of private banks. And I think that there's a certain amount of transparency in our ability to, even if we're holding Federal Reserve notes, which we are, at least you know counter that power by keeping some level of anonymity. Now, here in Massachusetts, there's an experiment that's been going on for a number of years in the Berkshire County called Berkshires. I know it well. I know it well. Which is cash. And what it is is locally issued currency locally issued dollars that are in which you can spend them at various businesses that participate in the program. I think that's a very good model. That's a cash system. It doesn't it's one that's that's good for local communities, even for counties like Berkshire County. Um and it also is money that's issued without interest, so it's not Federal Reserve notes. It's 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 neutral. Right. No, we're 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 more than on the same page with that. I mean, there's a, right. a, a, a you know a, a big section of the book is all about this great flowering of alternative and community and virtual currencies. You know, saying you know is it time to 
to end the government's monopoly on issuing currency. And Berkshire's is, uh, you know, really yeah. held up as as one of the top examples of one of these programs that does well. The conversation I'm, you know, I'm trying to stimulate is is a little bit more subtle with Berkshire's. You know, it's really the issue of, like, do you need a paper version of it or not? And some people insist yes, and some people, you know, especially with virtual currencies, you know, Bitcoin is a, a popular example right now. You know, it, it doesn't need a physical world presence. But, you know, I love that you're you're keen on the, you know, what they're doing out there because, you know, this circles back to some of those more macro uh, questions about money that are simultaneously sort of delightful and, and frightening. You know, what what gives it value? What gives the currency value? Who says a dollar is a U.S. dollar is worth a dollar? And it, it it only is is valuable because you'll accept it, and it's only acceptable because you believe it has value. And and around and around we go, right? And so with these community well, 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 currencies, that's right. With, and our guest is David Wolman, the end of money. But David, look, the, what gives money value is the full faith and credit of those who issue the currency. And if you're going to get cash out of a currency, out of the economy, whether it be Berkshire's or whether it be a, some sort of a, 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 a treasury issued currency, right? Then you, you have faith of, in, in that issuer. Well, that problem, means. But the problem is that you're not you're not addressing the most important issue there, and and you're, you're making actually you're actually making money more vulnerable. To the powers that would inflate the currency, or if you don't, if you don't, if you don't cling to physical representations of it, yes, really, that's right. yeah, really, really, and I was like, why? Because the way the system we have now allows the Congress to go to the Federal Reserve and do what's called bonding of debt, which means that they borrow the money and they move a couple of computer uh, decimals around and they create money. And they also give these bonds through the New York Federal Reserve to the big banks. And they do right. what's called fractional banking, which is that if they get like a $100 bond, they can then go out and lend out $1,000, 10 times more than the actual bond, which is a figment anyways. Right. Now, if you don't have cash in an economy or you don't have some kind of a tangible asset – because money is it should be a physical entity. Ah, boom, boom. Well, wait, a minute, wait a minute. And if you don't have at least access to that, and again, it's not that I'm against individual borrowing and against debits and all of that. That's just another subject. Then you're going to be opening us up for the kind of manipulation that's already gone on and that has robbed the value of the dollar. If the right. dollar is virtual, it's still a dollar, whether it's Absolutely. exactly. And to Ex have the element or the access to physical money reduces the likelihood that the currency can be manipulated in a way that inflates it. Even though the lion's share of U.S. dollars are already electronic? Well, and look at what's happened. We have right, a right. <laughs> dollar debt. We have a dollar, the working man's and working woman's dollar is worth a dime compared to what it was worth even 20, 30 years ago. And there is this ability by our private bankers to inflate the currency and reduce the value of money. It's a backdoor tax. So we have right. to have a way that we have physical money and we also have the government doing what Berkshire's is doing, which is issuing currency directly from the Treasury, only enough to cover the uh, gross national product or, or, or what the economy needs without interest. And right. then you well, can have credit cards and you can have all of these things, but you're not going to have the kind of inflation 
that we have. And if you're going to go to an all cashless society with mm-hmm. the current system we have, you're going to not only open us up for huge inflation by the banks, but you're also going to remove the ability of people to have any say in it because everything they do will be a matter of public record. But let me welcome in my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick? Thank you, Chuck, and, and uh, th- thank you for being with us today. Uh, my pleasure. David, I, I want to say uh, this is the, the, a delightful book. Um, I get eight, ten books a week, and maybe I read two of them, and in order to read one of them, it has to catch me pretty quickly, and yours caught me pretty quickly. Uh, you've managed to uh, to take what could be kind of a dry theoretical economic argument and put it in really funny personal terms. And uh, that, to me, is, is, is the mark not only of, of a good writer but a good teacher, too. Not to say I agree with everything you're talking about here, uh, but I, I wanted to start at the back of the book just so we could give our listeners an idea of what I mean by you put it in personal terms. The back of the book, in the last chapter, you talk about selling coins from your father's coin collection. Do you have any regrets? Over some of those Indian head pennies or Indian head gold. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I wanted to do here. You know the sort of uh, the background soundtrack to the book is trying to go the, the whole year without using or even touching cash. You know I wanted right. to see what what might this cashless future look like. Uh, not because I'm eager to prema- prematurely applaud it, but you know wh- where are the places that cash matters in our in our daily lives in in little ways and in in large ways and even in kind of philosophical ways as as your co-host was talking about. But uh, when it was all over, uh, you know, my dad sent me this coin collection from his childhood, you know, which, let's be clear, it was not, this is not uh, an all-star coin collection. This was a guy who was a 10-year-old who was maybe interested in collecting a few coins for about eight months before he was on to his next hobby. And uh, so I took the coins to a local coin show here in Oregon, and I, I wanted to sort of run an experiment on kind of the the values house of mirrors that that is physical money right so there's the the money the value that the government stamps into the thing there's the uh, precious or not so precious metal value of the thing there's the um, you know there's the purchasing power of the coinage and then of course you know there's the the big kahuna, uh, personal value and emotional value and historical value, the value that, that I uh, assign to, you know, a photograph of my, my son that, that no one else can, can, uh, uh, can match or can assign. And so, you know, for people who are impassioned numismatists or coin collectors or coin experts, they are going to assign value to some of those coins that I brought to that coin show that, that I just won't because I'm not a coin collector. And so this experiment of mine, you know, I ended up offloading a few hundred dollars worth of my dad's coins, mostly quote-unquote junk uh, in the vernacular of coin collectors uh, that were worth barely more than sort of the silver content of a lot of these pre-1964 and 1965 quarters. And yet this other thing happened, right? And you probably recall it from the chapter, which is that I, I had this, without even really thinking of it, I... I couldn't relinquish the last of its kind or anything that was one of a kind. I was kind of quietly putting in a different pocket in my briefcase so I wouldn't offload it accidentally. And, you know, it was sort of the emotional value almost uh, infiltrating my afternoon saying, you know, hold on to this stuff. It's, it doesn't matter if you can't articulate exactly why you feel a little connection to these things. You might. 
and or my son might 30 years from now. And so, uh, anyway, I'm I'm kind of rehashing the the whole chapter for right. you there, but well, that, that was sort of that was the gist of it. That brings me back to a statement that you actually wrote in your book that cash is good. <laughs> I do remember that. Cash is good, but cash cash is miraculous and is this incredible human achievement. But cash is also extremely expensive, and well, I, I wanted to. There. Um, well, I, I that, know you, you describe all the, the the costs that go into cash and, and and printing it and circulating it and storing it and all those other things. But um, dig, Digicash is also expensive too. That right. Is, so, so no form of transacting for that money for free. They they charge a percentage, and a lot of times you don't just like you don't know the cost of cash. You also don't know the cost of non-cash. And I, I think what we have to realize here is that nothing is free. There are no free lunches. If you're going to give money from somebody to somebody, no matter how you do it, there's friction involved, and you're going to pay for it. Well, and I love your use of the word friction there, right, because a lot of us see these things, money in whatever form. I mean, we're so busy trying to, to pay the bills and plan for next next week or next year that, you know, most people don't stop to think about, you know, where does where does money come from? What what does it mean that the Federal Reserve issues the currency, you know, and, and that the Treasury then profits from that process, let alone the idea you just mentioned, you know, friction in our financial lives, right? Absolutely. Money in whatever form and transacting with money in whatever form, there, there's friction to that, right? So we're all interested in reducing that friction. And, and I think... Uh, you know, there, there's well, uh, a, a healthy here. argument healthy argument to be made in as far as which which modes of transacting we want to use to bring down that fiction. Uh, let me stop you right there. I, I disagree that we're all interested in re- reducing the friction in financial transactions. I, well, you I should be so wealthy to love to well, you know no, to have that luxury. No, wait a minute. Uh, I, I I would I, I'm more interested in making sure that the the cost of financial transactions are spread as widely as possible, rather than them all being concentrated on me. And when I use right. a credit card, they're all concentrated on me. But when I use a ten dollar bill, they're spread as widely as possible, and I only pay a little tiny part of it. Right, right. Yeah, I think that I think that's a totally fair point. Do you remember the gentleman I wrote about in India in the book who is transacting with his mobile phone? Yeah. He, there's a guy who, you know, an electronics repairman in a slum in India, and he, you know, as of a few months ago, he can make a bank deposit at a local kiosk. He puts some money down, and then basically with a little text messaging, the money is now in his bank account, right? So I asked this guy about a lot of these concerns, you know, whether it's the, you know, hackers or the the kind of the the, the cyberspace worries of just your your wealth kind of going up in smoke, let alone kind of now he's, you know, the State Bank of India kind of has its hooks in him. Uh, State Bank of India, by the way, is, is a, even though it sounds like a central bank, that's a, you know, it's a private bank. That would be like yeah, Chase. Yeah. And he looked at me like I was from the moon. I mean, he really was like, are you kidding? I mean, you just watched me do this thing, and we just talked about the value, the value proposition involved here and how this has changed my life. Right? I, I send money to my relatives in the countryside. I used to have to ride a bus two days there, two days back. That's four days not working. That's paying for the bus. That's while I'm gone, I have to pay someone to watch after my shop so my stuff doesn't get stolen. You know, and he's just this long kind of bullet point, bullet point, bullet point of these tremendous life-changing advantages to this guy as he struggles to climb out of poverty. And I raise to him these kind of 
you know, I, what I think are kind of indulgent concerns about the privacy of the stuff. And he says, you know, you are crazy. You know, this this is saving this is saving my life and could help me, you know, potentially send my kids to school. And again, none of that is to poo-poo the very substantial and worrisome privacy concerns that we have in the West about people seeing what we do with our money. But, you know, if you can't wake up to sort of the benefits of electronic money, especially with this mobile money stuff, for the billion people out there who have a phone but don't have a bank account, then you're just, you know, you're just not reading closely. Well, actually, I was on the board of a foundation which provided microloans to uh, women in, uh, in Central America, Guatemala, and we eventually shifted from cash. We used to have a guy with a bicycle who rode around from village to village to hand out money to exactly what you're talking about because there are too many times when the guy on the bicycle got held up. So I, I'm quite well aware of that, and I understand that the uh, the women that we gave the money to by uh, a phone were actually had more privacy because their husbands, who would steal the money from them if they got the opportunity and go drink it up, didn't really know what was going on as long as the wife kept the phone uh, hidden, which she frequently did at her in-law's house. And when she had cash, he did know. So I understand. Cash is expensive, you know, and that is a fantastic and painful illustration of that. And, you know, much more so than, you know, you and me, the three of us, we we have the luxury of kind of toggling between electronic money and cash, right? So if you guys prefer cash and we're going out. Well, but it, exactly. But it's you know it's not a luxury. It's the, those costs are glaring for them. Whereas we can sort of riff about the you know the environmental costs of printing the stuff or what have you. But those costs are amplified you know a million times over when you start to scrutinize the impact of cash on the poor. Well, uh, we have to take a, a, a quick break. Can you stay on for a few more minutes? I have about five more. Okay. Uh, well, t- tell you what, Chuck, do you want to push the break back? Yeah. Why, why don't we do that? David Wolman's our guest. The end of money. David, again, you're creating a sort of a false dialectic here when you talk about the um, the benefits of an electronic money versus cash. Of course, electronic money has benefits, and you, you illustrate them quite well, especially in third-world countries. The only point I'm making is that cash has to also be a part of any economy. It has to be an option. People have to have the ability, not just in terms of individual freedom, but also as a check and a balance against the ability of the government to just create money by moving a couple of uh, computer mouses across a, across a pad. Right. And, uh, and also, well, I understand what you're saying, but only, I understand. <laughs> your claim that money is very expensive to produce it, we've been producing cash in this country for over 100 years. We have big mints in in. Uh, in Philadelphia and in Denver and in, even here in Boston, there's a there's a, a, a minor mint I think that's working in the basement of the Federal Reserve Bank, and uh, it's not that expensive. The reason it's expensive is because of inflation, but the actual cost of creating a dollar bill is really a tiny cost, and it's something that um, you know I would argue is worth it, and especially not just in terms of the dollar bill. But our coinage, as in our our pennies, our nickels, our dimes, those are created directly by the Treasury interest-free. That's only a tiny fraction of the economy, but they're also important. So, you know, it's not – there's nothing, you know, negative about the cost. The cost is tiny. And uh, the only reason it's gone up, again, is because of our bureaucracies and because of our inflation, which, of course, again, is the fault of the private bankers. 
that we're right. on the Federal Reserve, in my opinion. Right. Well, you're definitely not the first person to uh, to express so and to uh, you know really loathe the idea of of nixing even even just the penny. You know, a lot of people, uh, economists, right. will tell you the penny is uh, absolutely worthless, and uh, it will it's more financial cost and risk to bend down and pick one up than it is well, to produce bring, them. And we should bring back the value by by <laughs> right. But by, you know, but the problem is you're not quite value. understanding inflation there when you say that bringing back their value relates to their physicalness because you know the the Federal Reserve issues money and your concerns about inflation persist whether or not money is in physical form or not. So so that I sort of am losing you on. Well, first of all, I, I mean bring bring back its value, not because of the physicalness of the penny, but because you have right. So your so your worry is the the value of the currency, and that I am absolutely on your team about. Well, you know, no, and that's the point is that your idea would actually give open the the um, the currency system up to more manipulation. And also, when you say that you you had an emotional problem parting with with old coin at a fair. It's because not because it's money, but it's because it's an objet d'art. It's a uh, you know it's an item of it's an antique. You know it's worth something intrinsically because it expresses a, a portion of American history. It's like giving up something that has uh, intrinsic like a like a tapestry or like a statue. It has it has intrinsic value. It's not so much because it's money. There's nothing about gold per se. I mean I'm not interested in a gold currency. I think we've proven that we don't need that. You know, gold. We can't eat gold. It doesn't have any. It has some industrial usages, but it's not something that. It, it's it's one of these items that I think goes to manip, uh, those who want to manipulate currency. The issue is that we have to uh, tackle the issue of, of of an honest monetary system, not get rid of cash. If we have an honest monetary system, then we'll be, there'll be plenty of room for both cash and non-cash transactions. We need to know how much money is in the economy and why it's there. And there has to be a scientific way to determine that, not the way we have now, which is by letting these private bankers decide. David, I think you have to go about now. Tell I, I do, but uh, I, I do. But again, you know, uh, I'm I'm delighted you guys are, are interested in the book, and thank you for for the lively discussion. Thank you, David Woolman. The book is the end of money. Take care. Bye bye. Patrick, we'll we'll go to a break. We'll be right back. Uh, thank you, David. We're about to take a break, but uh, I want to tell everybody they can get your book uh, on Amazon.com and uh, on fine online and on the street bookstores across the country. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, then we're going to talk talk about some more. Radio with Chuck and Patrick. You can be part of the radio of our radio show by uh, calling uh, 424-675-6806 or emailing fairnessradio at gmail.com. That's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're here every day, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m., broadcasting on Blog Talk Radio, on Cyber Station USA, and on our terrestrial radio affiliates. And uh, want to remind everybody uh, about one of our great sponsors. That would be 
Barton Publishing. Joe Barton, of course, was on the air last week. Barton Publishing is your source for information on how to manage your health and how to manage your body without resorting to expensive and possibly dangerous drugs. That's www.bartonpublishing.com. Chuck, we are back. Very good, Patrick. Well, uh, we, our guest uh, was was uh, David Wolman. The book was The End of Money. What say you, Patrick? Um, I don't buy it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't get it. Pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know that the banking industry would love to have us uh, switch over to DigiCash because they make money on DigiCash. And, of course, I'm sure we've all seen the uh, – the ads by Chase uh, Bank of all the happy people at a restaurant just pointing their phones at one another. Um, I don't buy it, uh, you know, for trivial reasons because you can't put Digitash under your your kid's uh, pillow for the tooth fairy, and for more substantive reasons is that it leaves a trail behind you that you may not want to leave, and for the reasons that you pointed out that um, there are reasons we have money in our constitution. Right, there are, and also you bring up the very apt issue. I wish I had brought it up, and that is that every time you do a transaction uh, on a debit card, on a credit card, somebody you have to that there's a cost for it. I don't care if it's a couple of cents or there could be a bigger cost. Whereas if you pay cash, there's not a cost. You you know you just are getting the face value, and um, and if you get rid of cash, I mean those costs are going to go up. You'll be supine. You'll be you'll be victim. You know, you, we'll have no ability to stop it. We'll become dependent upon this completely illusory um, form of, of money. And, and again, it's not a matter of he's trying to set up this dialectic that either you're in favor of cash, all cash, or or no cash. And that's that's not where it's at. Of course, you have to have credit and and um, and and debit, and, and it does help people build a credit rating. And that's true, especially with the poor. That's not the issue. The fact is that there has to be a diversity of all sorts of money, and you have to have access to cash. It's just a basic part of freedom. I, I completely agree with you. Um, I, I will give up pennies. You know, I, I wouldn't miss pennies. Right. But uh, aside from that, um, I, I, we're, we're in total agreement on, on this one. Uh, it, it's a mix. Yeah. And, and I have resisted um, some of the uh, the – the uh, importunities of that, the importuning by the banks that, that I switch over to DigiCash, uh, because I know that I pay for it and the merchant pays for it, and there's no reason to do that. I'd much rather give a merchant a $10 bill than, than swipe my credit card for $10. I, and I actually, I, I don't use debit cards at all, which of course is the uh, the current form of DigiCash. Because if somebody gets hold of your debit card uh, in some banks, um, they can raid your bank account and Bank's no. not liable. They can suck the money right out of your bank account, and uh, you know it's uh, it, it definitely you know it just it just leaves you vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, and of course with a credit card they they can't do that to you. Uh, so I, I don't buy it. No, and also he's trying to set this up like somehow cash is old fashioned, you know, fuddy duddy, you know, like we're luddites for wanting to have cash. And and that there's this new wonderful idea, which is a cashless society. Oh, how exciting! And this idea that somehow this move toward a cashless society is inevitable, sort of like what they said about nationalized healthcare back in the 1980s. It's inevitable, and it's not. Uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a choice, and it's it's something that's uh, there's nothing new about any attempt by by any institution to tell us we can't have cash. That's as old as the hills. 
and uh, well, actually, they did it in communist China. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually when you say it's old as the hills, it, it pretty much is. Cash has been around for what five thousand years? It's been around since the beginning of time. Yeah, well, it's the beginning of human time. Uh, it's the end of civilization. I mean, even in the Bible, I mean, Abraham bought the cave to bury his wife with cash. Yeah. And they even get into exactly how much cash he laid out for it. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's not new. Now, there is, as I pointed out, there are times in which you don't want to use cash. And that's sure. why um, the uh, foundation I was with switched to uh, electronic cash. But there was a cost there. The, the women that we gave the cash to over the phone, she had to have a phone. Buying a, um, uh, a phone in, when, you're, when you make $50 a month, uh, and your husband takes it all is not an easy thing. And generally, what they had to do was they had to rent a phone for a day, which cost them money. They had to pay for the minutes. They also had to have a bank account, and the bank account was actually run by the phone company, and there was a fee for that too. And this is this is another little interesting aspect of Digicast when you move into the the the, uh, the phone area. I've dealt with this as um, a development director for nonprofits when we set up. Uh, DigiCash donations, and there are about three middlemen involved. It's not cheap, and those costs come right off the top of uh, whatever it is you're, you're earning. You've got to pay the phone company. They charge a little bit. That You've got to pay the bank. There's a company that sets the whole thing up, and they can charge five $600 to set it up for you. Right. DigiCash is not cheap. Yeah, and I think, no, exactly. And, again, this isn't a matter of whether or not it's not, you know, a, a them or us type of argument that I think he was trying to make. You know, there is a place for, and there are legitimate reasons why someone may not want to operate in cash, and he gave those reasons and making this into a class issue, which it's not. All I'm saying, I'm just pointing out that, that all of these things are true. Cash plays a role. It has to be part of any... <laughs> free economy, that doesn't mean you have to use it, but you have to have the option to use it. Yeah. And if we let go of that option and we go to a an economy where everything we do is goes into a gigantic computer somewhere, then that's, that is going to bring up some serious questions of freedom. And he said, you know, it's, it's a struggle between civil liberties versus our obligation to do everything publicly. I side with civil liberties. I do too, and and but I actually rejected that. There's a struggle. Uh, if you give people the choice to use money or DigiCash, they make the choice, and there's no struggle at all. You give it to the individual. Exactly. I mean, it's uh, and there are reasons for doing both. Uh, sometimes more one than the other. But this whole idea that we have no right to privacy, you know, and that that everything needs, you know, that that we're hiding something, you know, or that there's you know that's that runs against it's not a matter of whether it's in the constitution it's not but it runs against basic american notions of 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 individual freedom and and, so. and common sense yeah i think so and of course the supreme court has found a right to privacy in the, uh, the constitution they claim it <laughs> and and that's uh, you know it's it's the point is it's based upon you know you don't have a privacy to murder somebody but yeah. you do have even though it's not there we we assume that that people have a general right. I mean, it's the Fourth Amendment says you have a right to your your private papers and your personal effects, and that's why you have a uh, you know there has to be if, if if the government wants to come into your domicile, they have to have an order for search and seizure. You know, I mean, it, it, there is an aspect of um, 
of understanding that uh, you know privacy has something to do with private ownership doesn't mean you can kill somebody privately. No, no. but uh, you know you have a right to uh, private ownership of property, and it's inherent. It doesn't mean you know for, to come up and say, well, there's something su- suspicious about your insistence on this. You know, what, what are you doing? You're, you're you know you're paying hookers or buying drugs. I mean that that sounds that smacks of like. Um, you know, a very authoritarian view. I mean, I'm sorry, but uh, I don't. I don't have to explain why I, I want to have privacy, and I don't want to have to be put under some kind of a suspicion because I, I believe in it as a concept and is how I want to live. Exactly. Boy, we're we're really agreeing on on this one uh, com- completely. Uh, but like I say, I will give up the penny. Pennies are a problem. Now, you say you'd like to bring back their value, um, but their value is only a penny. No, well, the yeah, but pennies. You need sometimes you need a penny to round off a transaction, and um, it doesn't matter whether they're valuable or not. Something sometimes is, it costs a dollar ninety two. I mean, and I don't want them to round it off so it costs a dollar ninety five. I mean, it's just that simple. You know, they, they have a use, whether or not the actual penny, the, the the copper in the penny is worth more than the penny, which tells us that there's a problem with inflation. Not that there's a problem with the penny. It shows that our money has been inflated to such a degree that it isn't worth hardly anything now. Well, I think pennies are mostly zinc now, aren't they? Whatever they are, the the metal is worth more than the actual value of the penny, and that's not a condemnation of pennies. It's a condemnation of our economy. Well, of course, final prices are set by the merchant, and the merchant can, 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 and many do, set the price so that it's round. Uh, even with taxes applied, and and that's frequently where you run into the use of pennies, is you have to pay sales tax, and that's right. the percentage. So, but a lot of people are, uh, a lot of merchants say uh, a round number, including tax. Uh, so you can get around that one easily enough too. Well, we both agree on on, on this one, um, uh, except for a minor disagreement on the penny. Right. And there it is. Uh, coming up in the next hour, um, Dave Johnson is going to be with us. He's going to be back in his regular uh, uh, Monday afternoon segment. Of course, we heard from him Friday. And I think he's going to be talking about subsidies for manufacturing, and oh, okay. which, which raises the question, is a subsidy for manufacturing a good economic strategy for the United States, or is it just more corporate welfare? So that's going to be a, uh, an interesting conversation. Uh, tomorrow, David Rubin is going to be with us. Right. We're going to have to do a. Um, uh, well, I'll talk to you afterwards. But he's uh, he's in Australia. Oh yes. Okay. Yeah. So you and I are going to have to have a talk about that about how we're going to interview him. And then um, Ali Roselle. Remember, some time ago you talked about a phone company that uh, was uh, supporting uh, uh, gay rights and gay marriage in Massachusetts. Yes. Well, that phone company is Credo. Okay. And uh, the person doing that, Ali Roselle, is going to be with us tomorrow. In Massachusetts? Uh, well, she's nationwide. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because, I mean, is she, is she up on this Massachusetts issue? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, okay, because it, I'll have to vote up on that one. I, it, it was a minor story. It wasn't a big scandal. It was, But it brought it, it raised some questions of propriety when you had a, a nonprofit private company telling people to order a certain phone service. So it's actually a for-profit Company. There you go. Yeah, and I'll, then, look, in, I'll look into it. And then um, our old friend um, uh, David Cohen is going to be back. Yes, that's yeah. uh, the the uh, the boycott Israel issue. Right. Uh, he, he's been pretty busy. It's been hard to sort of book him. And then uh, on Thursday, um, 
Brian uh, Brokow from SEIU wants to talk a little bit about paycheck protection. And uh, Professor uh, Tamara Piety has uh, a new book out on uh, commercial use of the First Amendment. So we've got an exciting week coming up. Patrick, just to mention as a little program note here, I haven't been getting those books. Uh, Oh, I got the. I I did not get the book about money. I would have liked to have had that. I did get the book about Roosevelt, which I loved. Interesting. And I got I got some of the other books that that of guests we're having coming up, which I also there's one that deals with local economy, which I think is pretty good. I'll see if I can get them to you immediately. Yeah, but I want and I and I would like uh, Paul Wolman's book too. Yeah, no, that, well, that, that's an easy one. I can get that one to you immediately. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll take care of that. Publishers, just for our, our, our listeners understand that the publishers send us these books. Right. And we have a form. We send the publisher. It has both of our addresses on it. And sometimes they send two books to one of us instead of one book to each of us. Yeah, and I like to read a book. You know, yes. I don't like to just do uh, – So we'll, and sometimes I read the whole book. <laughs> yes, sometimes you do read the whole book. <laughs> I'm still reading Frederick Stecker's book, for example, and I like it. Right. Well, it, we're at the top of the hour, so we're going to have to take a, a break, and uh, we'll be back. Okay. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and uh, we're at the top of hour one. We're going to be back in hour two with uh, our regular uh, economics uh, contributor from the left, Dave Johnson. So stay tuned. Chuck and Patrick, and I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. Chuck is hosting today, so take it away, Chuck. Thank you, Patrick, and welcome aboard Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. You're welcome to join us at 424-675-6806, hour number two, uh, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is Chuck Morse along with Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, who is emanating from Los Angeles. I'm here in the city of Boston. Patrick, how are you? I'm pretty good. I'm, you know, I've I've uh, recuperated from yesterday's uh, Oscars party. Yep. And yesterday's bike ride, and uh, back at it for the week. So yeah, things are pretty good. How how about uh, Boston? Are you guys coming out of winter? Yeah, I mean it's it's chilly, but it's fine. It was a pretty mild winter here, and um, kind of not much going on um, in the news. I mean, there's a there's actually a, a this is like a, such a minor story, but it's one that I, I actually sympathize with, um, and that being uh, Douglas Kennedy. Do you know about that? I read something about it. Didn't he get a traffic ticket or something like that? I, he had he wanted to take his newborn baby out for a to get some fresh air at a hospital, and nurses tried to stop him, 
and they tried to grab the baby out of his arms, and he pushed them away and took his baby outside, and he's being charged with assault oh. by, by the nurses. Oh. And, um, I, I don't know the details. They claim that he kicked them and that he was, you know, this kind of stuff. Who knows? I, I, you know, it's just I generally sympathize with him. Having, yeah. been, having been there with a baby in a hospital, I mean, it's not. I don't like. You know, I, I wanted to get my child out of there as soon as possible myself. Uh, it, it, now he's running for office, right? No, this is uh, this is the this is the uncle. This is he is the son of uh, Robert Kennedy. Okay. He's a he's a Boston guy. I mean, I think he's a reporter here. Interesting. Uh, I haven't. Uh, I, I'd like to say I saw something very small, uh, a small story about that. Um, um, well, in, in other uh, uh, very discomfitting news is the, the shooting in Ohio. What about it? Um, this was a shooting outside of a suburban Cleveland, Ohio high school, uh, I think yesterday, no, this morning, this, actually this morning. One student was killed, four others were wounded, and um, the shooter apparently was, was caught a uh, short distance away. Uh, the shooters were high school students from another high school. but uh, Was there more than one? Uh, yes, apparently there were. What was it about? Uh, an argument. You know, similar to the Columbine type situation. No, I don't think so. I think this was an argument of, uh, among the kids ra- rather than Columbine, where we had a student who was out to get the school. Yeah. Uh, I mean, were they were they uh, crazy, or was this like a premeditated situation? Well, it's sometimes hard to say whether teenagers are crazy or premeditated. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it was premeditated. I mean, uh, they planned yeah. to go there. They went there with yeah. kids and they, they shot kids. Yeah, and there were text messages flying back and forth and, and uh, uh, insults, and some students were claiming other students were bullying them after school. And uh, But it just uh, – it, it, I, 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 I'm always uh, – when something like this comes up, uh, you know, there's a reflexive demand for gun control. And uh, – I'm always kind of torn on this one. Uh, many of my progressive friends, of course, say that uh, that the Constitution says that you can only own a gun if you're part of a militia, mm-hmm. that the NRA seems to forget that part of it. Many of my progressive friends uh, say, quite truthfully, that the NRA is actually a lobby for the Gun and Manufacturing Association, man, gun and, manu- and ammo manufacturing companies. It's not really... Uh, dedicated to gun freedom. But on the other hand, um, guns have been part of American culture ever since uh, before we were America. Um, And it's just who we are and how we've grown up. Um, There are other countries that also have guns as part of their their culture, too. Uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan are two I can think of. Italy is another one. Uh, Italy has has quite a a gun culture, too. Switzerland, every single male from the age of 16 up has a gun and knows how to use it. Uh, What country was that? Switzerland. Switzerland, yeah, Yeah. that's right. Uh, So it's – and, of course, the the, – And probably the state in the the U.S. state that has most private ownership of guns is Vermont. No, I think it's actually now Virginia. Is that right? Yeah, Vermont is Vermont is high up there. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it is. But uh, you 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 have to ask if if we can regulate an automobile to try to make it as safe as possible, why can't we regulate guns to make them as safe as well, possible? Well, we do. I mean, I don't think it's legal for these kids to have guns, is it? Of course not. But they can still get them. 
Yeah, but it's regulated. They've got regulation. I mean, they can't. The law says they can't have it. I mean, that's a regulation. Well, the, <laughs> the, the reg- is how did they get them? I mean, well, see, see that that's where it breaks down. Uh, first of all, the, the regulations vary from state to state. Uh, so one of the places where you can get them is at gun shows, where there's no questions asked. Even uh, for a teenager. Uh, well, that's when straw buyers come in where a teenager can give money well, to illegal. somebody who's I mean, over the age of 21 to go buy it at a gun show and then give it to the teenager. We've tried to stop that with uh, laws against selling to straw buyers, and the NRA has objected to that. Virginia, yeah, it's illegal, Patrick, for somebody to go in and buy a gun from minor. It's uh, like going in and buying cigarettes from minor. Well, of course it is, but, uh, what, but when you buy a gun at a gun show, it's not traceable. So you buy a gun, you give it to a kid. Nobody's going to know unless that kid how, tells how, the police. I mean, that, I mean, that's isn't that how we found out about Fast and Furious? It was traceable. I mean, they knew that these people were buying them for uh, drug cartels. Well, that that was because uh, the gun dealers were cooperating with the Department of Justice in that case. But, but don't gun dealers generally uh, report these sorts of things? I mean, if they they think someone's suspicious, not at gun shows. I think they do. No, they don't have to. And, and, and again, also, Patrick, I mean, look, the whole issue, I, you say that your first thought when you hear of a situation like this is gun control. My first thought when I hear of something like this is whether or not these kids are on psychological drugs. <laughs> well, there's that, too. But, that I, might... I, but I didn't say my first thought. I said often the first thought of my progressive friends is gun control. Right. I happen to like guns. I enjoy guns. So uh, that wasn't my first thought. My first thought is is there a way in which we can allow, not allow, but, but, but guns can, can have an appropriate role in our society, but we can, we can minimize or eliminate these inappropriate roles? And we've never been able to figure that one out. Uh, uh, and I'm just kind of, kind of going through the reasons why. Uh, when you say kids aren't supposed to get guns, well, you and I both know that, but in many states, you can, at a gun show, you can sell guns out of the trunk of your car legally, no questions asked, no no no, no background checks, no no records, etc. And whenever laws have been passed to or proposed to stop that, the NRA oh. comes in and says that's a restriction on their freedom. What state would that be, Patrick? I think actually it's the Texas. That you can sell a gun out of your trunk without any kind of a notification that that we don't have to know who they are i believe i believe texas is one of them yes yeah i don't know about that but but i mean i i you know my issue again with it is um that especially certainly in the case of columbine and you might recall there was a whole slew of these sorts of shootings back at that time was the leading around 2002 2001 around that time that all, almost all of them were uh, done by young people who were on psychological drugs and were having uh, hallucinations, they were homicidal, they were suicidal. And I think that what we saw with these very widely known cases like Columbine and like the one down in Arkansas and just about all of the others was just the tip of the iceberg because if you look at local news across the country during those years, there were a lot of more local instances where young people, teenagers, more male than female, were committing terrible acts of violence and were committing suicide um, as a result of taking these drugs. And, uh, I mean, here in Boston, I can think of three cases where a young person murdered his girlfriend or, or committed suicide around that time and that it was found that they were 
you know, they were on Ritalin or they were on Val- is Valium or Librium or some other drug. And to me, that's the issue. That's uh, what is driving, and we we don't know what, what drove these kids to do it, but I think that if there was some research done, we would probably find that they were on some sort of an antidepressant or some kind of another uh, drug that, that all, was altering their behavior. Well, like I say, we, we don't know that, and uh, the, the, arg- the, the counter-argument, or not the counter-argument, but the comment there is that um, if, if, in fact, there were children involved who wanted to commit violence acts. They would commit violent acts whether or not they had guns. And, again, that comes right. back to guns don't kill people, people kill people. Then there's the counterargument to that is that guns make it a lot easier, and that frequently if people don't have access to a firearm, they're low to use other means because those other means involve uh, physical contact and uh, much more easily traceable. And then there's the other argument that says, Sometimes when you have a gun, uh, you could just pull it and shoot without even thinking about it, and kids do that. Yeah, so we get back to the whole question of is there a way – one second, I haven't finished. Is there a way in which we can, we can give guns their, their legitimate place in our society but allow, but not give, give them an illegitimate place in our society, regardless of drugs or anything like that? And <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about that. Patrick, when you were a teenager and you were in school back in the 1950s, there were probably more guns available than there are now to young people. In fact, back then, a lot of high schools had gun uh, clubs, and they had gun classes, and young people learned how to um, hold firearms. I know that uh, you know Boston Latin School, where my daughter attends, they actually had drills and you know they were you know, they used the backyard for drilling you know students, and it was mandatory. This is back all the way up until the 1950s, and they did away with it, but. The point is that guns were more accessible, and you very rarely had these kind of crimes. I would argue that it has nothing to do with guns; they are more difficult to get now. It has more to do with the the way youth, our young people, are being treated psychologically with these drugs and with other things, and generally with an educational system. I think it's gotten better, but you know that blurs some of the. Uh, Chuck, we have to introduce our uh, radio listeners. Okay. Okay. You want to do that? Will do. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Welcome aboard WWPR AM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon. Blog Talk Radio is our host today. Uh, Cyber Station USA Radio Network will hopefully be back tomorrow. They're undergoing some renovations. Uh, this is yours truly, Chuck Morse, along with Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan from Los Angeles. Patrick, how are you? I'm good. Uh, and we're talking about guns and uh, I've uh, in the 1950s, I actually took one of those gun classes, and yeah. in, in my uh, my high school, we had ROTC. We we shot every uh, every week. I turned out to be a fairly good shot. So, but as far as the availability of guns, not a chance. As a high school kid, when I went in to take one of those gun classes, those guns were locked up. We, they were handed to us for the uh, the class. They were put back away. Kids could not buy guns, and frankly, I didn't see. I never, ever saw a gun in high school. I don't recall any news stories about guns being used in, in high schools or by local gangs at all. The gu- guns were not available, readily available in high school. Well, let me ask we you. had the classes. Did, you, uh, did your father have a gun? Yeah. All right. You could have taken that. And I'm just saying that in general, guns were more commonly available uh, in society than they are today. Um, people had them. I know my grandfather had a gun. You know, people had them. They don't now. 
generally. Well, my, my father's gun was a an old uh, 45 left over from the Navy, um, and I'm not sure it shot. Right? Well, but, whatever. The point I'm making, though, is a valid one, and that guns were more accessible. They were more available then than they are now. No. And no, I would argue they were. It was more kind of ingrained in society. I mean, not just in my own personal anecdotes with, with what life was like in the 1940s and 50s, but it was not an unusual thing for people. To, you know, a lot of fathers had guns, and uh, and not and not just the gun your father had. They had real, you know, guns that worked. I mean, it was not uncommon for that to be part of the household as a defense issue. Um, that has. It's one of those things that has you know reduced been reduced greatly in society we we have moved away from that so it's i would i would just argue that it's not a matter of too many you know too much access to guns it has more to do with um, you, you know why people are driven to this kind of behavior and and that's that to me is the issue and i think that if you cite all of the you know if you take a look at all of the big sensational stories in the 1990s and maybe in the early part of this decade that did involve terrible instances. I mean, I'm thinking of the one in, in Virginia Tech. Remember that? He yep. shot 35 people. Yeah. He was on psych drugs. If you take a look at, oh, yeah, he had a psychiatrist. He had like three different drugs. The point is that there is a connection there. Well, I, I agree with you that there's a connection. However, as far as availability, United States has 90 guns for every 100 citizens. It is the number one armed country in the world. We have uh, there are 875 million known firearms in the world, and 270 of them, 270 million of them are in the United States. Uh, that is an increase from 1960. That's as fast. That's as far back as I could go, where there were 30 million known firearms in the United States. Well, population's gone so, up too, Patrick. Well, yes, there is. But the point of it is, is that uh, there are 90 guns for every American now, and okay. that's very, and that's much more than it, than it was at least 40 years ago. And I agree with you that you know psychological state obviously is a point is a point. But once again, if you don't have a gun, you're not going to rapidly pull it out and shoot somebody. It's a, it's a lot harder to kill somebody. And with a knife or poison or a bomb or a car or something like that than it is with a gun. It makes it just very, very easy. I'm not saying we shouldn't have guns. What I'm saying is I, I wish we could find a way in which those guns were not usable by children and by, by people with the kinds of problems you're talking about and also by criminals. If we, if, and, again, I want to get back to the, to the gun laws. Uh, you can buy in most states, in Michigan, in Georgia, in Texas, in Colorado, you can buy a gun in a gun show or in the parking lot of a gun show, no questions asked. And, in fact, there have been many, many stings of gun dealers in gun shows in which people walked up and said, I really can't pass a, uh, a, a test. Can you sell me a gun anyway? And, of course, I can. And not just, not just pistols, too, but, but automatic weapons. Automatic, there are weapons that can be made automatic. So we do have an awful lot of guns in, in our society, and we and I, I think there needs to be a way around that, that that doesn't denigrate the role of guns in our society, but yet doesn't allow them to be used by the kind of people you're talking about. I would argue, again, that guns are less accessible to average people today than they used to be, uh, just because they're not around as a cultural matter as they were, where they used to be very prolific. Well, we have to take a break now, and I believe our next guest is with us, so hold on just a second for a quick break, and then we'll be, we'll be back with Dave Johnson. All right.
Awareness Radio with uh, Chuck and Patrick, and uh, it's time for our guest. Uh, Chuck, you want to do the honors? Dave Johnson's with us. Dave, of course, is with the Huffington Post. Dave, how are you? Good, but I'm not with the Huffington Post. I just blog there sometimes. Okay. Uh, you're with yeah. the um, what, uh, Americans for for Peace, Love, and, and Apple Pie. What is the name of your group? <laughs> Americans for Peace, Love, and Understanding and uh, uh, Magic Mushrooms. <laughs> we, yes, I know. Which we're it's the campaign, we just, campaign we for America's future. We were talking about that, Dave, in the, first, in the, in the uh, segment before. Sometimes called oh, you were? campaign for America's future. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Magic Mushrooms. On? The <laughs> campaign for Magic Mushrooms. Please. What do you think? Tie-dye and tie-dye shirts. And what do you call me a guest? I'm a guest? How long do I have to live there before I'm not a guest anymore? Are, you make well, me do the dishes. Uh, okay, uh, I've got plenty of leftover from a party last night. Everybody who's on the show, is, who comes on the air, is a guest. But you're a regular contributor. But when we bring regular you on, contributor you're a guest. guest who has to do the dishes. <laughs> you Chuck, people you got any dishes for Dave to do? Not right now. I always do. I got some dishes here. I'm going to dish this out to you now, okay? You ready? What's going on, Dave? I just posted a post, and the title of the post is, We're a Country, Deal With It. And I'm going to actually just read a bit of it to you, uh, because that's easier than thinking. Again and again and again and again, we hear and learn the hard way that our keep-government-out-of-it approach to economic and manufacturing policy is hurting us. The countries that see themselves as countries and therefore have national strategies, where the ecosystem of an industry and or sector is coordinated and nurtured by government strategies, they are doing much better than the countries where leaders think government interference is a problem. I have lots of things in quotes there, by the way, like government interference is in quotes. We send our companies out to compete against organized national systems and the result is that we lose our jobs, factories, industries, and economy, and maybe one day our country too. We're a country. Deal with it. Here's the important thing to understand. Even if you think the idea of countries is out of date and don't, think, and don't see the United States as a country, it, as a country is important anymore. Sorry, and don't think seeing the United States as a country is important anymore. I just found a big typo I have to fix. Uh, oh others see themselves as countries, and they organize their countries to win as countries. And you don't live in those countries. They see us, this geographic region we live in, as a country, even if we do not, and they plan their efforts accordingly. They attack us as a country, and you happen to live in the geographic region called a country that they are attacking. So as they seize the jobs and factories and industries from our country, all of us who happen to live within the geographic borders that we refuse to call a country lose out economically, whether we – another typo. This means we have to respond as a country regardless of whether our ideology says we shouldn't. We are under economic attack as a country, so national government still matters as the only force – capable of organizing a national response. So that's the beginning of a post. And then it gets into some studies of national economic policies where they organize what's called industrial strategies, where the government picks winners and losers 
boosts things like the infrastructure around uh, manufacturing areas, boosts the education around it, boosts the financial structure around it, even loans companies money, even builds factories, uh, and all those kind of things. And especially I mean China, as you know, because mm -hmm. China is who who is mostly doing that, who we're competing with, who we send our individual companies up against alone, who we don't help those companies fight China, and we're losing. We lost, I think it was 5 million manufacturing jobs just in the last decade. We lost 50,000 factories to China while Bush was president wow. because he would not enforce the trade laws, and Obama is barely enforcing those trade laws. Whatever well, going it, goes, on with China, it goes back to uh, NAFTA and GATT. I mean, it was uh, signed in 1996. It goes back to NAFTA and GATT and all of those kinds of treaties. What yeah. they did was they opened up our borders so that we cannot protect our democracy. We People totally in China. Yeah, we totally agree. Dave, let China me ask you something. I just um, we have a, Patrick and I have a guest coming up, Michael Schumann, Local Dollars, Local Cents. Are you reading this, Patrick? Uh, no, I just got it. Okay, but there's. I've already started reading it, and there's something that this, what I'm taking out of it right now, and I agree with the author entirely, we should be investing in local companies and, mm -hmm. uh, and local infrastructure, and he's into this whole localism thing, a very conservative idea. But something that he mentions right in the beginning of the book, and the foreword is by Peter Buffett, by the way, Warren Buffett's son, um, interesting, which is an interesting piece, is that he says that in the 1930s, during the Depression, the government passed all of these regulations that made it very, very difficult, if not impossible, for the average investor to invest in local companies and small companies. You only can do it through these licensed people on Wall Street, and they put the money only into big international and, and national companies, and, um, and that these laws have been in place since then. Um, you know, I, he doesn't. I don't know. I'm just starting the book. I'm sure he gets more into detail. But this is really interesting. I, I'm finding that to be a fascinating piece of uh, of information. I had no idea. Dave, what say you, Dave? Well, I I kind of I'm kind of a little mixed about that. The idea of local is important. What I'm trying to get at is this idea of seeing ourselves as a country means that we have to understand that our government has to be strong. It well, has to be it up, strong Dave, because then the we're a strong of, country. I'm, I'm bringing it up in the context of what you're saying because this is an example of our national government engaging in regulations that have hurt people. They've hurt small companies. They've hurt the ability of local companies to to uh, attract local investment, and it sort of has stacked the deck. You know, I mean, we just Patrick and I just finished reading a book about Roosevelt, and he was supposed to be a great champion of of the of the little guy, but all these laws were put in during that administration, and yeah, I just don't think it's something that that people can even fathom. You know, why can't we? You know, it, it, why is it so difficult for a small local? industry or a local manufacturing company, one run in a community that isn't national, that isn't international, to get investment. They cannot do it because it's the the the, uh, the laws are rigged in such a way that it's very, very difficult. Instead, I, I'm just, that's in only the big guys. Somehow I'm completely missing this. The problem right now with getting investment is the the basic problem right now is that the Fed is giving money 
to banks at 0% and then is getting the banks to loan back the money to the government at 2%. And that all well, why should we, so well, banks, I don't even know why we need that I mean, as a middleman. I mean, that, that yeah, brings I'm, up I'm a just, bigger question. Why should we be paying any percentage on our own money as a nation? I agree. Why yes, are we giving 2% to the banks to create our money? We don't need them. Oh, well, we can do it directly. It's, yeah, that's right. It's, it's because they're trying to recapitalize them because they all went broke from the massive uh, uh Speculation no, they it's, were doing. it's the system that's in place, and it's been in place since the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. And also, Patrick and I just finished reading a book about about Roosevelt, the plots against the president. And one of the things well, the whole, that Roosevelt did the whole idea in the first hundred days this, was he strengthened the Federal Reserve. In other words, well, this, you know, the whole, idea the whole thing was rigged. Is, is that we're yeah. supposed to have private companies that do things instead of government, which means essentially that as private companies become monopolized or giant, that it means that instead of we doing things for each other, we have a few people benefiting from rules that then don't let us do things for each exactly. other. Exactly. But the point yeah. is that why, you know, this was, the, the whole thing was set up by our sort of liberal elite establishment in the 1930s, and it's continued. R which R repeat for me, here's what I missed. What happened in yeah. the 30s? Some of the reforms that took place in the first hundred days of the Roosevelt administration included laws and regulations that made it very, very difficult to invest in local companies. It all, all you had to have, in a sense. And again, I just started reading about it. It's in his book, and I don't think he means to get into are, this. In the way I am. Are you talking about in, in the fairness. securities and exchange rules? No, I'm talking about the the accreditation of brokers. I'm talking about you know, the whole process of who gets to do the investment, who handles the investment. Okay, got it. it, it got was, it. And yeah, also it was I mean, done in such a way that, that it made it impossible, virtually impossible for a small company, a, mo a mom-and-pop manufacturing company locally, to get local investment. They'd have to go through New it. York. This is what we're talking mean, about with Wall Street. You don't mean loans. I mean, you mean selling stock and stuff. Selling stock. Exactly. It. Yeah. So you cook okay, up. Yeah, in other I words, you or yeah, I could not invest in a local company in our community uh, by buying stock or, or, or exactly. trading in the company. And, and it has turned into such a rigged game now, this whole idea, this whole going public thing now is, is like this big rigged game now. Yeah, exactly. It has to be done on a national scope. You can't just do a, a small offering. Right. It costs too much. But they, this is, where I, this is yeah. my point with, with the dangers of government regulation. Look at how they screwed all the little companies going all the way back to that time. And, and all well, of the people, that, all the capital that could have been probably accumulated. You know, we complain about the fact that, that uh, much of our capital has been sucked out of local economies. And this is why, because well, of regulations listen, that have set the table in that way. There's two strong sides of that. One side is that came into being as a result of huge, huge amount of fraudulent stock sales going on, and they had to clamp down on that. The other side of that is that once it came into being, it's once again an, an example of, of giant economic forces capturing government, and rather than having government, we have a sort of a government by these giant economic forces where the, where the big Wall Street investment banks seized on that. Uh, the rules... What happens so often is the rules 
as written by Congress are pretty clear, but when they get implemented by the agencies, all the lobbyists of all the powerful forces are able to get in and affect the rule-writing process of the agencies hmm. to their own benefit, and it's all behind the scenes. It's, it's done after Congress writes legislation, so it's very difficult to track, and so they're able to really manipulate it to their advantage, and so only the giant Wall Street investment banks can handle these public offerings now. You're exactly yeah. right. It's massively expensive. I've been through it. And so you can only do it on these large-scale things. And then the IPOs themselves often turn out to be these scams where they raise far less than the company ought to raise in order for the Wall Street banks to to push a lot of that initial public offering money to uh, favorites. One of the big places they push is when you hear about members of Congress being involved in an initial public offering where they're able to buy stock the moment it comes out, because these giant investment banks manipulate this process so that the price of the stock so that the price of the stock immediately goes up what's happening is that anybody who is able to buy that stock the minute it comes out they know it's going to go up yeah, they know they're going to double their money or something was, right away this, that's a scam and, they, and because it goes up it means, and the reason you know about it is yeah. because Peter Schweitzer who um we should exactly. have him on the show. I interviewed him Uber, years ago. Is he at Hoover Institution? He's at Hoover I Institution. I think right. so. He's a good guy. I yeah. He wrote a yeah. great book several years back, Do As I Do, Not As I Say. Uh, or exactly. Do As I Say, Not As I Do, which was about yeah. some of the richest members of our government and how they're yeah. how hypocritical they are. Anyways, he yeah. exposed this literally a few months ago, and now there's been a bill. Yeah. I think that it's been voted into law by a pretty good number of members of Congress on both parties. But it was a shock so, to discover that what, just, what what he said and what you're now repeating is is in fact true. That congressmen were manipulating, uh, you, you know, the stock or manipulating. Yep. Uh, you know, they, they knew in advance that certain bills were in front of them and would be passed. Oh no, that's, diff- that's a different one. That that's a different problem. This problem yep. is simply that the Wall Street banks engineer these IPOs in order to, that they will go way up. It's a way for them to be able to legally bribe people because if you can get in on these IPOs when they're first sold, you know they're going to go way up in price in an hour. But, see, here's the thing. That price difference is what that company should have gotten when they sold their stock. They should be the ones getting that money. But the banks use this pool of money as a bribe source. And so when you hear of anyone buying stock, getting to – that they're not associated with the company – when you hear members of Congress or others getting stock from these uh, Wall Street banks, what you're hearing is a payoff. I when agree. They, when, they can, when they can participate in an IPO, it's a payoff. Clearly. A legal payoff. Patrick, what say you? Uh, well, there's a lot of things to say on this. Um, yeah. Uh, but let's start with the, with the national industrial policy. Uh, I, yeah. I, have, okay. I have been um, – in favor of a national industrial policy for a long time because when I lived in other countries, they all had one, and many of those other countries are now um, ahead of us in terms of economic growth. But I do have to recognize, and I don't know how you want to deal with this, Dave, but I do have to recognize that um, I saw when I was part of the state government here, we had a state policy. I helped write that policy. Sometimes we were wrong. And we put uh, taxpayers' resources into things that didn't work out. Now, 
obviously that's what venture capitalists do all the time, and they're happy if they hit one Google and 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 throw away a, a hundred other things that didn't work. But when you're using the taxpayers' money and you're wrong, you're going to get criticized for it, and that makes politicians very very reticent to uh, to do right. industrial policies and. I've never figured out how to get around this because what generally happens is you don't have an industrial policy, you wind up with crony capitalism. That is, the state, the politicians who uh, are writing these policies or voting on these bills, put them into companies that will donate back to them so they'll change laws to make it so the companies can easily succeed, even though it costs other parts of the society, like labor, for instance, uh, something. And uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but we wind up paying for it in lots of other ways, and it doesn't necessarily well, let me, lead to a coherent policy. I got a couple of good answers to that. And by the way, you're talking about almost the same thing Chuck and I were talking about a few minutes ago. I know. When you have regulations, then behind the scenes, the players can manipulate those regulations to benefit themselves. And here we're talking about industrial policy. Well, you're also describing almost our entire military budget right now, by the way, too. Because <laughs> that's that. how it works. That's exactly how it works right now, you know. And the problem is then how much can you clamp in and do something about this? And that's this is where Chuck and I completely agree. He comes out as an anti-government preference on this. He says government will always do this, and I say you need to get in and have ways to keep government from doing this, okay? Because because if you don't have a national government that, that is strong and sees you as a country, when other countries are competing with you, then you lose, and everybody yeah. in that geographic region is going to lose, so you have to do it, okay? Now, I heard somebody say something really interesting a couple weeks ago. He said, look, when we do these big national things, they're always corrupt. They always end up, you know, enriching a few people that are on the inside. And he pointed at the railroads, for example. When yeah. we built the railroads, a bunch of insiders wound up getting really rich off of that, off of government corruption. But the difference between then and now is this. We built the railroads. And and we did those things, okay? We defeated the Soviet Union with this huge military expenditure. They're corrupt. But we used to do it so that it would accomplish the intended goal, too. And now it's just corrupt. That's the difference. It's the whole process is gamed now just to get the money out, not to get money out while you do the right thing. It's it's like, well, you know what I'm saying. So, yeah, so I know the, what you're saying. And I'm looking for yeah. a way around it, particularly uh, after Citizens United, uh, it, as, as, as has been said many times, including by yeah. businessmen, that the best investment they, they can make is to buy a member of Congress. And we've Exactly, and now that, that it's kind of wide open that you bribe the government, it all comes back now to the biggest players just win everything. <laughs> so they don't have to t compete anymore. They just buy government. Uh -huh. That's the problem is so, the competition is gone. So how do, you know, how do we're we get not, around that? Dave. Well, right. And and here's the, the thing about government policy, picking winners and losers, is that when it's a government policy to foster the ecosystem of an industry, it doesn't matter if individual companies lose money and go out of business because the ecosystem is still being nurtured. Even like with Solyndra, all of the people trained at Solyndra, all of the technology at Solyndra, all of the effort towards solar at Solyndra and all of the uh, 
customers they had and everything else nurtured our American solar industry. So it was a success as far as the government's concerned. The money that was lost, uh, two things happened. One was that Solyndra, they tried to recapitalize using, you know, the sophisticated recapitalization methods that put certain investors ahead of others. So the government did end up losing some money on that. But that money went to the larger purpose of government, which was to foster the industry. So as we try to nurture ecosystems of industries, we win against a China, okay? We might lose on Solyndra, but we still gain some competitive power against a China when we do it. So, I mean, it seems to me that uh, how did we gain anything from um – from Solyndra, I mean, it's uh, – and also you talk about buying members of Congress. I mean, there's a long list of people connected with that company who were sending money to the Obama administration. Well, actually, no, there weren't. The The main investors who were private investors was the Walton family, and they hate the Obama administration. That's uh, the the investor to... you're talking about wasn't investing. It was his – it was his foundation, a family right. foundation. Right, like Patrick investment. and I have talked about this. This, you know, this reminds me. It reminds me of like the the whole business of um, uh, not to get into a, a, an incendiary topic, but you know, Planned Parenthood keeping two sets of books. One oh. set of books is the one that gets a hundred million dollars from the government. The other set of books is the one that handles abortions. And, and of know, course, those are two separate things. Uh, it's easy course, to take a course. quick break well, we're, we're and getting uh, identify here. ourselves. <laughs> You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Uh, we're broadcast on Cyber Station USA and on Blog Talk Radio and our radio affiliates. We're not broadcasting on Cyber Station USA today because they're upgrading their equipment. We're interviewing uh, Dave Johnson, who is a regular contributor from the left on uh, domestic economics. Uh, go ahead. I'm a guest who Dave? does the dishes, right. Uh, <laughs> the answer to your question is that by helping Solyndra, you might like that, but I don't see how that's benefited the country's overall structure in terms of converting to solar energy. I think it would have been a much better expenditure to have local utilities offer people um, maybe some financial benefits to installing heat, heat uh, improvements in their homes or Solar yeah, well, energy. there's a problem not, there. Not a, a half a billion dollars underwritten for this company when apparently the, the uh, people at the Obama uh, Energy Department knew in advance that there was something shady about the whole deal and that there no, were people no. that were that contributed. Why do you have to cast this weird spin on this situation of Solyndra? Nobody, if there was anything going on with Solyndra, wouldn't somebody have been charged with something? I mean, come you, on. You would think. You would think. Come on, but, but, but nobody means, did anything wrong. I, I, I think that we've but, seen a lot of cases going way back where people, a lot of things are swept under the rug. I mean, Patrick and I have an author coming up about a, a conspiracy against President Roosevelt, an attempt to overthrow the government, and the whole thing was swept under the rug by Roosevelt himself. But we're getting back on the topic here to answer, answer your questions. The, of many yes, the answer to the question... The answer to the question, how does a Solyndra help the overall solar effort, is that the government put $500 million into the ecosystem of a solar industry. How that was their goal, the and that's what they did. Industry. And the ecosystem, no all, those people, all those people that were trained at Solyndra 
can go work somewhere. They've been yeah, apparently trained there weren't by very many money. of them, Dave. Apparently there was very few people trained to do anything. The money was. I, I'd like to know where the money went. I mean, if you were, if what you're saying was true, then yeah. But I don't the think the money that, went that, to build a factory and pay salaries and uh-huh. do research, and especially into research and development. And that research and development was done in the United States and remains there. And the people who were you trained to do people. that. You know, this is a classic example of what, Patrick, you mentioned, crony capitalism. I mean, and this isn't the only one. And it's not just Obama. I think that there are other. This is well, a system we're talking about. I don't know why you keep about. saying crony cap. What is crony capitalism about the Obama working with a company that the Walton family owned? I don't care who owned it. I don't it. get they that. All, well, you know, the Waltons were supposed to view that. Oh, I'm sure they probably did a lot for Obama. Maybe, I, don't, I don't assume that they're necessarily... Anti-Obama. Then you well, don't they're know very anti-Obama. <laughs> they're major contributors yeah. to to Republicans and campaigns, and they were in 2008. Uh, to answer your question the, uh, about the ecosystem, the eco the solar ecosystem in this country, according to Solar Buzz, is 82 billion dollars a year. It produces 18.23 gigawatts, and it grew last year 139 percent. That's the solar ecosystem, and that's that's what they contribute to. But we're off the topic, uh, as usual. Yeah, we're, but we're talking we about manufacturing topic. here. Since you like to do this sort of research, and you usually have this information at your fingertips, how much did Walmart give to Democratic candidates uh, in the past couple of years, or even in the past maybe six years? All right, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, give me two minutes, and I'll tell you. Meanwhile, Dave, you were talking about uh, manufacturing policy, and I was yeah. saying that right. it frequently this, gets corrupted, idea. and I've been part of a state that tried to do it, and we didn't always do it well. How do you do it without it getting corrupted, or is there always going to be a certain percentage of waste in this, and that's just the well, all, you have to pay for? There's always, a, there's always a certain percentage, but we seem to have stopped doing anything about this kind of uh, corruption of government. You know, it's, it's been what? It's been a very long time that that the influence that companies have over government has just grown and grown and grown. And then the Citizens United decision that allows unlimited amounts of corporate money. Look what we have in the Republican primary. We have each of these candidates backed by a billionaire or a few, and that that's the only thing that matters. It's like Newt Gingrich wouldn't even be around anymore if it weren't for a billionaire. And oh. Santorum's money all comes from one guy named Freeze. So, we, no, so it, it comes that. down to no. Well, actually, they don't. Actually, they do. No. Obama is, a, is, is, they claim you'll probably have up to a billion dollars by the time the general election happens. And during the 08 election, you got more Wall Street money than any candidate in history. So and, and as of now, as, as, I, as I pointed no, out, with, as I pointed out last week, he's, he's, he's on the bottom of the Wall Street contribution list. That billion dollars came from over 55 million people. There is not one single millionaire not who now. donated any money to the uh, Obama campaign. You keep interrupting. You mean billionaire? You keep interrupting Dave too. And there's not there's not one single millionaire that's donated. Oh, one has one has. Bill Maher, you're right. Bill Maher donated a million dollars to the to the PAC. To, to the Obama pack, but we're back. We're off the topic again, Dave. Well, let's let's go back <laughs> on the topic. But before we do, that's because Wall Street already set him up in '08, and now it's pretty obvious he's going to lose in November. So that's not obvious at all. Where are you well, getting that information? It's obvious. Every to poll Wall shows Street. him ahead. 
No, Every single poll shows Obama ahead. I don't know what you mean. guys are dreaming. Why don't you take a look at the latest Rasmussen? He's because not it's ahead. The Rasmussen polls don't oh, count. Okay. That's no, like if Fox News does a poll. No, you on. know something? You guys are, are I don't know what, what ozone you're on, but he's probably not going to win. No. And I think Wall Street, is, in their opinion, even though they backed him more than any candidate in American history in 08, now they're going to take a look at who's going to win because they just want to back winners. They don't care if it's Democrat or Republican. It is not a party issue with them. Well, once again, we're well, off the topic. Dave, you want to get back on the topic? Yeah, right? the, the manufacturing policy topic is that we have to see ourselves as a country and stop this nonsense about government interference and how the government has to stay out of it. All the other governments are competing with our companies, and until we get our government then competing with their governments, our companies have to lose that battle because we cannot compete with national systems with just companies. And so like China takes uh, picks an industry. One example just a couple weeks ago came out a study about auto parts, okay, the supply chain for automobiles. They have targeted that with government subsidies and have started capturing the supply chain for auto parts now. And so as our uh, automobile industry revives, where we're starting to build more and more cars in Detroit, our auto parts industry is not reviving at all because it's starting to come from China. Massive government subsidies, massive government uh, things like the power is cheap, they build the factories for them, they supply these dorms full of workers, they have this huge policy of keeping their currency low. Yeah, we agree on that. So we have to respond as a country. We can't do anything else. Now, the Obama administration has a manufacturing policy office, but all they're handling is coordinating uh, trade agencies to help our exporters find customers, but they're not helping our exporters ex- build the build the products to export, and that's what's missing now. Is we need we hear one of the things we keep hearing about is that there's not enough well-trained workers. Okay, now suddenly all these companies that say they want to have low taxes uh, are asking the government to train workers for them, but it's an example where now so. So you hear about we don't have enough welders, we don't have enough this, we don't have enough that, and companies are having trouble finding trained, skilled workers because they laid them all off, uh, and and they're in the wrong geographic regions, regions and can't sell their houses, etc. But that's an example. Now these companies are are crying for government to start training more workers with certain skills. So that's just one example, though. If the government were ahead-looking, forward-looking, like in the solar industry, they would be training workers especially to no. to be ready to compete with China. So that's an example well, the of government, how government... Obviously, this government really hasn't done that. The, uh, the Rasmussen poll, which is out today, has Obama's approval rating at 45%, the lowest in months. Yeah, yeah but that's and, Rasmussen. And why don't you quote behind too. Romney and Ron Paul. He's ahead that, well, yeah, if why don't you quote Fox honesty. News, too? Come on. I don't know what Fox News if they do a poll. Bizarre, well, Rasmussen, actually, you, you know, you could, their, their polls, if you take a look at their record, it's it's one of the best. Now, you might say they're uh-huh. conservative. I don't know if they are or not. But the actual, you know, they have a record of polls 
that go back many years that can be assessed, and they're very accurate. Well, uh, one of the reasons why, by the way, the Rasmussen poll is actually better than other polls is that they don't just poll people. They poll voters. Well, well, so, well so, do, so do many of the other polls, sure. too. And what are and, they saying? And, and that, those were approval ratings, and those approval ratings, if you look at the whole thing, not just, not just yesterday, have gone up and down and up and down over the past year. And those are approval ratings. They're not match-ups. And the match-ups now have Obama beating all the other candidates by a few percentage points. And incidentally, to answer your question, according to uh, OpenSecrets.org, Walmart uh, donations from 1990 to 2012 have gone 76.6% to Republicans. Okay, so then they've given a good deal of money to Democrats, too. And that's, <laughs> that's an exception. And that's one of the few exceptions. A few uh, exceptions and, to what? A few exceptions <laughs> to the big money, which has gone to the Democrats. But, uh, Patrick, what about the Walton poll, family? Patrick, you're, what you're about the Walton quite, family? You're, you're quite wrong in that the Rasmussen poll shows Romney 45, Obama 43. That's an approval rating. Right. Not a matchup. No, it's not, not answering yeah, the question. I, I'm afraid it's, to go to the page because they, they have some funny music going on. But <laughs> it says that um, Rasmussen poll, Obama approval. And by the way, his poll numbers have fluctuated, but they've never been very good. I think the highest he maybe got was like a, he broke 50 a couple of times. But generally, his uh, you know since since maybe the first six months in office, his approval ratings have been not you know barely above uh, 50 and often as low as 30. So again, you're talking approval ratings, not matchup, not an election matchup. The CNN poll, political George Washington University battleground poll, mm -hmm. indi indicates that uh, Obama would beat uh, Governor Ma Governor Romney 53 percent to 43 percent in a hypothetical general election map matchup held today. That doesn't mean anything. And also, well, none Santorum? of those things mean anything right Wait now. a minute. Did they, did they do what like about a poll? If you say in a matchup, did they do a poll of actual? Voters? voters, yes. This is a poll of voters. Uh, Centorum, uh, Dave, uh, according to CNN, Washington uh, political poll, uh, Obama beat Santorum 53 to 42. But, of course, this is before any real campaign has gone on. This is before we even know who the nominee is. So these polls are pretty meaningless at this point. No, but I think that, you know, you're right about approval ratings. Obama's approval ratings have been generally under 50 percent. Yeah across the board, no matter which poll is done. And, you know, unless something dramatic happens between now and November, he's going to lose. Now, there's also the, the issue of gas prices going up. Whether it's his fault or not, it's happening under his watch, and that's not going to be good news for him, especially with undecideds and with independents. Well, we should, if you look at historical uh, push approval ratings, which I'm looking at right now, he was at 43% just before the election, uh, his, his election, election. he won that year. Of what, 2004? Of 2004. Well, I mean, yeah, but if you take a look at his overall numbers consistently, he was, he was generally higher. No, he wasn't. I'm looking at those numbers. He started out up at 90% right after 9-11. He dropped down to uh, 51%. At the beginning of the Iraq War, he dropped down again to 57 uh, to 49 percent uh, in 2003, and it was straight down to 2008. So the only point at which they were high was right after the war, at the beginning of the Iraq War, um, and at that point they all went down. They went down, but they were still higher than Obama's numbers. No, never, no. Obama's numbers have nope. been between 30 and 45 consistently. Now they they're hovering around 45. He might have. 
he might have, you know, nicked 50 a couple of times. But generally, his numbers have been down. I, I've been look, I'm looking at the numbers right this. here, and uh, from 2005 to 2008, George Bush never got above 45. Well, he wasn't running in 2008. Why would anybody vote for Romney or Santorum? Tell me that. Well, I don't think it's – I hope it's not Santorum. I hope it's Mitt Romney, and that's because Mitt Romney would be a magnificent candidate, and he'd be a great why? president, and I, because okay, I know why him. Would they vote, why would they vote for a guy who made his money laying people off and then keeping the money they were making for himself? Why would they vote for him? Well, they, that's how you're characterizing it, but unlike most Democrat well, billionaires – like John Kerry and like Gore, in the election. Obama, uh, Romney actually made his own money, and I think that people are going to admire that. Now, we can talk he about how – he didn't inherit very much, actually. His father was not one of these fat cat millionaires, even though he was a governor and all that. He, uh, he, he, you know, he actually made his own fortune. He's a very self-made man. Well, that's the case that uh, Santorum is, is making right now. Uh, uh, he was wrong. Santorum is off his rocker. I hope that he gets, well, you know, completely. We probably all agree. So let's just talk about Romney. So, <laughs> the, but the fact is, that's what Romney did. He he came in. He took companies oh, apart. Oh, you know, they look funny. Well, Chuck, will you quit interrupting him? Let's oh, say. Chuck, that's say. how it will be characterized in the election as well. By that's the way. how some people so, will characterize it. I don't think yeah. it's going to wash. It didn't in Massachusetts. No, that's you know what that that's exactly what's going to be, uh, he'll be attacked as, you know, his success and, and all of that. I mean, I've already seen it. It's, And I think he expects it. I hope the people around him are smart enough to, to know that. I don't think that's going to fly. I think people admire success. He, uh, you know, for every person he laid off, he also saved a job. You know, and that is an investment company. They made a mistake of investing in a paper goods company at a time when Paper, people who were depending on paper were going bankrupt, including me and my company. You know, and you know paper. why? And you know why? Because they, people can't foresee those things, Dave. Even the smartest because people. Because China had a national strategy yeah, to take over the paper industry and subsidize paper. No, it's because of paper. computers, Dave. It was because of the internet. Paper was not. You know, look. Even the smartest people couldn't have foreseen the the, the complete collapse of the paper goods company, and it had to do with the internet. You can now it do, has it to do with Chinese email. competition. China is huge no, no, in no. paper. It's a Dave, huge industry. I used to be in a business where I distributed posters and flyers nationally across the country, and there were a couple of years in the late '90s where I was making a pretty good amount of money doing this. That business disappeared because people, rather than printing posters, they were doing it with computers. It was free, and it required no paper. You're talking so about a do... printing company. Paper suppliers well, right. were wiped out by Chinese pre- government. No, no, no. They were subsidies. wiped out by the computer, and that's just the way it goes. Romney's paper is a huge industry The biggest industry complaint now, against Romney was, his, was that Bain Capital invested in this paper mill and tried to save it by recapitalizing it and expanding it, and they could not foresee, and they made a terrible mistake, that that industry was on its way out. And they weren't the only ones. I mean, the whole thing. Here in Boston, we had this company called uh, Copy Cop. They were huge in the 90s. They had... We're just about out of time, uh, gentlemen. We're going to have to, to pick this up uh, probably right. next week. Uh, Dave, you got, you got you got 30 seconds. Uh, I think if you look into it, you'll find that the paper industry, not the copying, not the printing industry, but the paper industry. Okay, well, the paper industry fell to Chinese subsidies. Dave, where do people find you? Our 
seeingthefuture.org and seeingtheforest.com. Thank you, Thanks guys. Lot, Dave. I got dishes to do. Patrick, talk to you tomorrow. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Go to the blog site, fairnessradio.com. Have a good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, Dave. And don't forget to tune in tomorrow. Tomorrow is Religion Tuesday, and we've got two great guests lined up, David Rubin and Ali Roselle from Credo Mobile. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network and our terrestrial radio stations. Talk to you tomorrow. All right.